Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by the IOE and Vail Arthroplasty Precourse, titled Private Equity and Transactions in Orthopedic Surgery. Basics, Trends, and Future Predictions, taking place January 11th from 4.30 to 8.30 p.m. in Vail, Colorado. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome everybody to uh, our webinar on a very hot topic, Private Equity and Transactions in Orthopedic Surgery, the Basics, Trends, and Future Predictions. Uh, we're excited to have this uh, webinar on a hot topic sponsored by OrthoBullet, so thank you very much for, for their partnership. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> so, first of all, I want to mention uh, this webinar is in relationship to the IOEN course in Vail, an exciting course chaired by Ray Kim, Mark Pagano, and Brian Springer, January 12th through the 14th in Vail, Colorado. So, if you have the availability, interested in an outstanding course on all the basics of hip and knee replacements, as well as some advanced uh, things on outpatient revision, hip and knee arthroplasty, really would uh, appreciate your interest in that course. And a special part of that course is what is our topic tonight, which is everything happening around market consolidation, trying to maintain private practice in orthopedics. And that's what our webinar is about tonight. And it leads into a full four-hour pre-course that we're having at the Vail meeting uh, on site there. Um, at the hotel on January 11th, as you can see there, 4.30, to 3, uh, 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. And we'll have dinner with that course as well. Next slide. <clears throat> so I wanna introduce um, our, our, uh, the four of us here tonight that are doing the webinar as well as the faculty. You can see there Gary Hirschman, who's with us tonight on the webinar. Dana Jacoby, also with us tonight and will moderate the webinar tonight. Myself, I'm Michael Managhini from Indiana, and then Ray Kim from the Stedman Clinic, who is, of course, as you saw, is one of the chairs of the Vail meeting and is the host. And then you see two additional uh, faculty that we'll have with us at the pre-course, David Jakowski and Ed Hellman, to represent different uh, business um, enterprises that are really relevant. So we're excited about this for our pre-course and uh, really appreciate both Gary, Dana, and Ray being here with us for um, this OrthoBullets and IOEN-sponsored webinar. So with that, I'm going to turn it over. Dana Jacoby is going to moderate this, uh, this session. So Dana, take it away. Thanks, Michael. No, thank you so much for everybody for hosting this. And we're really excited to your point, Michael. I mean, we just got back from a couple of orthopedic meetings and man, this is the hottest topic out there. It feels like right now. So very timely. I'm just going to set the tone really fast before turning it over to our panel for discussions, but just to give everybody some color and you can see uh, pretty amazing year over year, how many physician transactions have occurred. We're on track. I mean, everybody thinks, you know, is the economy slowing down with interest rates, we're on track to actually have a banner year, even in 2023. Um, and especially in orthopedics, this just seems to be the hottest topic in the majority of groups around the country. So we thoroughly anticipate that this will continue. We'll talk a little bit to our panelists as to why here shortly. And then Part of the reason for that is just because the consolidation above and beyond ortho, right? You've got the big five, now the big six, Amazon, Optum, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, 
um, amazing to see how many Medicare Advantage lives are covered now through these folks. And it's leading into most orthopedic surgeons and more, most orthopedic groups asking the question of where do we fall in this whole continuum of care. If your Medicare Advantage lives are covered by these types of folks, you know, what does that mean for you? If your specialists are bolted onto this, what does this mean for you, et cetera? Um, so really fast, and then I'll turn it over to some questions, but just to give everybody some color just in the orthopedic space, you know, we really had one platform in 2017, if you go to kind of this next slide, and then nothing really too much in 18, nothing in 19, but between 2020 and 2023, there's now over 20 platforms that are private equity backed in the orthopedic space. So with that as an opener, I think it's a good opportunity for us to turn it over to our, our panelists and really talk about, you know, Michael, and I'll start with you. I mean, let's talk a little bit about what is this private equity stuff and, you know, kind of let's talk a little bit about how it maybe is affecting your practice. And then we'll turn it over to Gary to describe some of the intricacies of some of the legal terminology, et cetera. Yeah, thanks, Dana. And you're right. I mean, um, the AUKUS meeting was just last week and an incredibly hot topic that was in the minds of everyone. So all your points are so well taken. I think one of the things we, um, <clears throat> some of the terms that some of our younger viewers in particular, you know, um, need to understand about this, their terms, you know, valuation, EBITDA, probably the term that's used the most in this is EBITDA. So one of the things I like to just talk about is, hey, what is, what is EBITDA? What is it? You hear it. When you talk about private equity, you hear that term all the time. And I might be ashamed to say that I didn't even know what that term was about <laughs> like four years ago. Uh, so the, I think what the, when people hear it, I guess for all of our viewers out there, even is basically sort of your cash flow, or you can almost think of it as your salary a little bit, uh, but it's earnings before interest, um, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. But the way businesses look at it, sort of your, uh, sort of your uh, cash flow, if you will. And then valuation, you hear a lot of, because they're talking about how is your practice valued or how is your group practice valued? And those are things that you hear in this private equity space people talk about. So I think, you know, with that, Dana, those are sort of the terms I think about. There's so many. I mean, this is that's why this, I think, for our pre-course is going to be so helpful at Vail, because we'll have time to walk through some of the specifics, whereas, you know, you can't do it justice in a, in a you know, a 30 minute to an hour webinar. No, I couldn't agree more, Michael. No, and it's it's interesting. It's amazing how many people now know what EBITDA is because they've gone through this yeah. process. It makes it real, right? Um, Gary, just uh, for, you know, turning to you, but I mean, we talked a little bit about EBITDA, you know, multiples of EBITDA, but are you seeing changes over the last 12, 18 months in some of the market conditions and things that you're seeing from your clients in the orthopedic space? Yeah, so I think over the last 18 months or so, um, so if you look at it as 21, to 23, so maybe that's almost two years or a little bit less, the number of orthopedic platforms, um, meaning pr private equity, different private equity investors that have started to consolidate orthopedic groups has, has doubled in size over that, you know, 21 to 23 timeframe. Um, and I think that in the next three to six months, there's probably going to be another two to three platforms. Um, so there's been a lot of activity, a lot of add-ons of smaller groups, but also some big deals like Ortho Nebraska, which was the most recent one on the chart that you showed. And we we kind of all know from being in this space, even if we're not working on a particular deal, that there's probably five or six other, you know, large orthopedic groups, let's call it 50 or more, 
that are out there in discussions and exploring options. So I think we're, you know, by the end of this year, definitely into 2024, you're going to see a lot more big transactions with larger orthopedic groups and continue with the smaller ones. And I think you're also going to see the first second bite transactions, which are those older groups that have been doing this for, you know, five years or so, four or five years, are going to start to move on. Those investors move out and a new investor comes in. um, And that's what's called the second bite. And everybody kind of makes money on their equity, all all of the physicians that have rollover equity, and, and that new investor invests in more, even greater expansion. Totally. No, I think that's I think that's great. And I think very good explanation for the viewers. And to Michael's point, I think a lot of people, this is their first foray into a lot of this terminology. Um, Ray, you guys went through this at Stedman a few years ago. And obviously, I'm sure you're listening to this going, I remember, you know, learning all these terms myself, but maybe describe, you know, what types of things did you look at when you were considering this? And has that changed? I mean, has a lot of your view changed as you're looking at new potential acquisitions or kind of what's on the back of your mind with the market conditions and changes? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey, Dana. Um, I mean, just thinking back, because this happened for us back in 2019. And, you know, when we initially were just kind of diving into this, we we actually weren't looking for any sort of partnership or any sort of private equity deal. Uh, we were approached by um, actually a couple different entities and it just forced us to start looking at it. We, we knew that it was um, something that should we should have a serious look at. You know, at that time in 2019, uh, as I think a lot of practices uh, are experiencing, uh, there's there's compression uh, of rates of reimbursement. You know, we're we're in a small mountain community uh, out uh, just just west of Colorado or what west of Denver in Colorado, and there were some interesting uh, forces moving uh, westward from from the university. Uh, there was entities coming from the West, moving eastward um, from from Utah. Um, and we were kind of caught in the middle. And so um, that's when we first started taking a look at at uh, at these deals. Um, you know, back then, I think we were really intrigued by the offers. Uh, at first glance, it was all about, you know, the, the multiple, you know, how much how much uh, money could we get? Uh, for our practice. And as we started looking at the different offers and deals, it became apparent to us that it wasn't necessarily about the number, the big number. Um, of course, you know, we all want, um, you know, a nice payout. Um, we all, as as surgeons, think we're worth more than probably uh, what some of the companies would 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 decide. But um, for us, it was really about finding the right partnership. And as, as we kind of went through what these deals were all about, um, it became more about the right fit. Uh, so there were things that were important to us. Um, you know, our clinical autonomy, our culture, our, our name, the Seven Clinic, um, some of our uh, intellectual property with our research institute. Um, our desire to expand for surgery centers. So these were all pieces and factors that, you know, as I've uh, been involved with our initial deal, and as I've looked at um, 
what could be a, a second second bite coming up. Um, I think one of the big things that I've learned is it's not necessarily about uh, the best monetary offer. I think there's it, it's it's much more complicated than that. It's it's really become understanding who your your best partner is and how it can be a win-win for both entities. 100%. That culture piece is more important than people give it credit for until you're in it. So true. No, I agree. No, that's great. Michael, I know you've been through some of these conversations as well, but also, you know, people have called you to say, hey, what should I do? You know, what's this private equity stuff? What are some of the themes you're seeing this year and has it changed? I mean, some of the folks that are reaching out are, are there, is their outreach changing in what they're scared of or interested in or anything all of the above? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Dana, and a lot has changed since we started this. You know, I've been in it for about four years. Uh, I've been involved in this space for four four years. And for sure, things have changed. I mean, I think the concepts that Ray highlighted are really important, which it's not, I mean, certainly the financials have to be appropriate because that's what creates solvency. I mean, you can't have bad financials. At the same token, um, you have to have great culture and synergy with who your partner is for all the reasons Ray outlined. Those fundamentals haven't changed. What I think has changed are the multiples have changed a bit. They're not quite as high as they were because of some of the market conditions. But I will tell you that ironically, and Danny, you and I have talked about this, even though the multiples have softened, the interest in this has not because the macroeconomic forces are continue to be uh, dominant, right? They're dominating the sort of local level forces, which is inflationary pressures, cost of labor, particularly nurses, <clears throat> um, staffing. Um, and then our professional fees continue to get cut. I mean, CMS just announced, announced their final rule last week, and it's another, depending on what source you read, 1% to 3% cut on our professional fees. And um, ambulatory surgery centers, you know, and HOPDs and what they all got increases. So, you know, those, that this, this market consolidation, as long as these big external factors are going, it's not going to stop. Uh, it doesn't mean you should hurry up and do it. That's not what I'm, I'm saying. But I'm saying that I think if you're a private entity, uh, you probably owe it to yourselves and all your employees to at least explore what this looks like. And number two, a lot of the inbounds that I'm getting now, it's changed a little bit. It used to be more private, uh, more private groups, medium uh, size, some large sizes early on and then medium size. But now we're seeing a lot of people who are in hospital relationships that aren't happy. They may be groups of employed physicians that aren't happy. So it's funny. One of the things I always hear when you're like, oh, my gosh, private equity has such a bad connotation. You know, the evil business people. I always say, well, yeah, show me a hospital administrator <laughs> that that right. They're just they're just humans like everybody else. So it's not that, not that hospital administrators are all bad. Not all uh, private equity related business people are bad. It's about humans, right? It's about respect and a partnership. So I think you owe it yourself to explore all of it. But we're seeing a lot of, a lot of people reaching out in some larger groups and some hospital-based relationships. I don't know if you feel the same thing, Dana. I mean, you're in this space more than I am. Are you, is that representative of what we're seeing? I'm I'm shocked by it, Michael. I this year has been fascinating to see the number. I mean, and doctors that I took into the hospital ten years ago. I'm sure Gary can echo that. I'm fascinated by the number of phone calls that are coming out. And I, I actually sat down with a hospital CEO and said, 
what the heck? And, and he just said, you know what? We lost a fifth of our nurses during COVID. We were so busy just trying to keep the lights on. You know, we were masking up in the N95s every day and just trying to keep people on the floor. We just didn't have a chance to say thank you every day to our specialists. And now they're voting with their feet. And so 100% we're seeing that same theme and trend uh, with, with all specialties, not just orthopedics that are talking about exits. Fascinating times. Um, every time Gary and I think it's going to slow down, it's a new theme that we didn't anticipate <laughs> hitting hitting the phone lines. Um, Gary, a lot of people that are listening to this studied anatomy, right? But they didn't necessarily study the anatomy of a deal. Maybe describe, I mean, what is the anatomy of a deal? And I heard both you and Dr. Kim say second bite, right? That came up. If I don't know what a second bite is, what, what does that mean? I think Apple, but um, what, what does that actually mean? And how does that work? If somebody's so wanted to private equity deal or any deal for that matter. Right. So I think you have to go back to the, you know, page one of the anatomy of a deal to understand the second bite. And so I think like Michael explained before, what is EBITDA? It's your cash flow. Um, another way to look at it, I mean, he, he's 100% spot on, but an, another way like back of the napkin is by looking at all of the partners, all of the owners of your practice, put all of their compensation in one big you know, bundle, don't count associates, just what the owner's total comp is at the end of a year or last year, whatever, this year. And that's the EBITDA of the practice. And, but the EBITDA for purposes of a transaction is what the compensation is going to be normalized by a certain amount. And what amount is that? So if, if, because that excess EBITDA is what's kind of being contributed to your partner MSO, the platform, when I say MSO, the private equity platform. So I just like to use a simple example. Uh, people may make less than this or more than this, but let's assume you have, uh, you know, 10 doctors and they in a group and, and you could scale this down to two or 25 or 50, but let's say you have 10 doctors in a group and on average, they each bring home, let's say they each bring home exactly a million dollars. I know that's not uh, realistic, but that they bring about home different amounts depending on their subspecialty and productivity. But if everybody's making on average a million dollars, okay, when you look at it on a per doctor basis so at the granular level, so a million dollars, if there was a 30% normalization, some people call it a scrape, then that 300,000 would be taken off and contributed to the MSO for the growth and whatnot of the platform. And, and the comp would be now at 700,000. So when you look at 10 doctors that go down from a million to 700,000, that creates 300,000 times 10, okay? Or $3 million of EBITDA that's being contributed. Not the value of the practice, but the value of what's being contributed um, after that normalization. And then you look at a multiple of that. So you have 3 million, um, you know, multiples are anywhere between eight to 12, mostly. Sometimes if it's a very tiny practice, it could be lower. If it's a very big practice with, you know, lots of executives and, and other great factors and reputation, you know, it could potentially go above 12 to 13 or 14. But let's go in average with a 10 multiple. So you have $3 million at a 10 multiple, that would be $30 million, would be how they value the practice with that level of, of 
compensation normalization. And so that 30 million is going to be paid part in cash and part in rollover equity. So if you said, let's take, you know, uh, an, an example of, let's say they took 30% of a third, let's say a third in, in rollover equity. So that's 10 million goes to rollover equity of the 30 and the other 20 million goes in cash at closing. So that's the way the transaction works. Now let's look at that rollover equity piece. That 10 million that goes to rollover equity. So each doctor gets 2 million in cash, 1 million in rollover equity. So that, that rollover equity of, like I said, a million per doctor, or in this case, uh, 10 million for the group, is as the platform grows, the value of that equity grows. So if they add on three or four more practices after yours, and then go do what's called, you know, a second bite transaction, where the the sponsor investor in the initial platform kind of gets cashed out. So do the doctors get cashed out in part. Doctors that are continuing to practice, they don't get cashed out in full, but usually anywhere between 25 to 75% would be cashed out and the balance would be rolled and continued in that new transaction. But the beauty of the second bite is doctors get some cash based on the incremental value since they got that rollover equity. So that rollover equity that started at 10 million, if it doubles or triples, which is usually what they shoot for, you know, two to three, two at a minimum, their real target is three or more. But if it had a three multiple, that 10 million of equity is now 30 million, which was the original value of the practice. Or if it's two and a half times, it's now 25 million. Um, so that's kind of the way the second bite works. And the new investor comes in and also commits even more capital to grow further because they like everything that the initial platform has done. That's great. No, and I think, I mean, what I heard from you, Gary, is that a lot of it is just your normalized salary, but it's the infrastructure build, not all the things that Michael was talking about, about, hey, if you don't have an ASC right now, if the reimbursement rates are this, you, you know, this is a real opportunity to get ahead of some of the themes and trends in order to capitalize your future. Um, so, no, I guess my only question, and we hear this a lot from different doctors, and I'll start, I'll start with Ray, because I'm sure you've lived this real time, Ray, but is this just the old guys cashing out? How do we recruit younger doctors? Um, what, I mean, what does this look like or sound like for new, newly minted doctors that are either coming out of fellowship or maybe that associate position that isn't a partner yet, is it harder to recruit those guys or is this, you've got the strength behind your back now with the wind of your private equity partner? So just to kind of go back on our experience, we had a couple docs that were more, more senior, uh, a, a bunch of docs that were mid-career and then um, some new docs that were actually employed physicians that were just brought onto the practice. And so you had, um, people, you know, at different stages of their careers, um, some thinking about retirement, some just coming on board. And the deal had to be created such that everybody would be in, incentivized. I mean, for a deal to be successful, everybody has to be aligned and pull the cart in the same direction. So, um, yeah, the myth is that uh, it's all about the old guys. They just want to get a big cash payout and then they're going to fade off into the sunset. And then everybody else gets, you know, kind of screwed over. And um, the way our deal was deal was crafted is that um, even for the younger docs, uh, they were granted 
a piece of equity uh, so that they would be engaged and want to be productive and want to grow the company. So um, I think that's an important thing that has to be part of every deal. Um, you want to keep the young folks engaged because that's the future of the company. And also, you know, in terms of growing the company, you want to be able to recruit and bring on talent. And so that was an important thing that we had to work for in our, in our, uh, our structure, uh, was, you know, in a lot of these deals, you know, let, let's say there's, you know, signing bonuses and that sort of thing. Um, well, for, for a lot of these new recruits, uh, they could get a piece of equity as they uh, started and reached certain phases. And let's say, you know, two years, they could re reach partnership if they generated X number of dollars of revenue. Um, so you want to keep everybody engaged and you want to be able to recruit talent. That's the only way for these deals to be successful. So, um, yeah, far from... Uh, Far from it being the old guys were just cashing out and the young guys were left with nothing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's been fascinating to me. Some of the newer deals that were being brought into the younger positions are calling. Um, and it kind of, it, it scrambles my head a little bit, but they want security. They are hearing about private equity. They want to know what it is. Michael, I don't know if you're having a similar situation to what Ray described, but it's it's interesting to see the newer doctors. I mean, they're they're kind of considering do they, who do they want to work for, you know, and hanging your own shingle is a lot harder than it used to be with reimbursement and everything else. Yeah, and I, I think um, the the concept, uh, one thing we need to address probably that a lot of people you hear a lot in the market now is some of the groups have matured is income repair. Because <clears throat> if you go back to if you go back to Gary's model, you can get you can now the debt's a lot more expensive now than it used to be, but you can get capital to build an ASC or to do so many things. But the attraction of a private equity backed MSO or um, management service organization, if people haven't heard that term before, what, one of the benefits of that is they bring services to bear that you may not have. They bring resources with that capital. So as opposed to a bank, which will give you a loan at a certain percentage, that you're hopeful that this enterprise is bringing these things. Things like revenue cycle management, things like uh, strength uh, negotiating with the payers. And I'll be interested to ask Ray how that's worked with their with their group. But you're hearing a lot now that we've had some evolution here. There's been some some groups that have successfully done income repair and some some that have not. But that goes back to what the young surgeon going in is saying. Okay, if I'm going to get, uh, I like the term normalization, Gary. That sounds a lot better than scrape. Scrape's <laughs> always painful, and it's oh, I've always said that. So if uh, I, I like that, if I'm going to get normalized, that's, that's a good term. Uh, Using an attorney to repurpose your words. Right, I know, right? I, no, don't no doubt about it. If I'm going to get normalized. I want to know if I'm your example, if I'm making a million dollars and I get normalized to 700, uh, I want to know that's great. But if this deal goes five, six, seven years before a second bite occurs, I want to know, well, can my income be repaired? It, it, it didn't mean not all I may, I may say it didn't have to get all the way back to a million, but at least give me some contribution and, you know, Dana, Gary, Ray guys, I'm in this space, um, you know, longer than I have. How has the income repair in orthopedics been realized? Because I don't have a great feel for it. I know I've heard some yes, some no, whatever. And then strategies that groups bring to bear to do that. So there's an important concept I hear a lot of the younger doctors talking about. Yeah, that's great. Gary, I don't know if you want to jump in and I'll-, I'll Yeah, sure. Um, so yes, the key is to, is to repair income. 
so that um, if you continue to work the same, right, that you're slowly getting back up towards the million, you might not get all the way there. But um, I think one of the myths, because Ray mentioned myths before, but another myth is that, you know, they crack the whip and you have to work harder. Well, as I just said, um, they don't necessarily want you to work harder. That's up to you. But they want you to work the same. They want you to, the same level of effort and productivity. That's what they want at a minimum. They definitely don't want you to slow down after you enter this transaction um, because that that kind of messes things up for you know the individual doctors and, and, and the whole group. So if, again, getting back to this, if productivity remains constant, some of the income repair uh, mechanisms we've seen are... As, as Dana said, getting better payer rates. I think you said that too, Michael. Um, so when payer agreements come up for renewal, try to negotiate better rates, maybe value-based payment bonuses, like for quality and other things like that, and bring in value-based programs. And in the end, that can be very uh, beneficial in, in getting more patients and, 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 more, and more revenue. Um, other things have been... I think the biggest income repair is investment in ancillaries. Like if you don't have an ASC, ASCs are very profitable. Or if you don't have physical therapy or imaging, those things are very profitable if you have a large enough group to support it, um, or there could be two or three smaller groups that support it. So those things you know, generate returns that can help bring, bring you back up and, 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 and repair your income. In addition to you know, doing better at revenue cycle, even without better payer agreements, um, being more efficient, like maybe you don't need, you know, a, uh, you know, an IT director at every practice. If you have one who's really good and has, has the, the bandwidth um, at, at the platform level, um, things like that, uh, an HR manager, again, a lot of HR could be done at the corporate level. So you do, you get some efficiencies. It's not cost cutting, cost slashing, but it's efficiencies where you don't need as many people. If you have three practices of 10 doctors and they each have an office administrator, an HR director, and an IT director and billing people, you put them together. It just makes sense. You don't need, there's a lot of overlap there. So so those are are kind of the the modes of, of income repair that I've seen. Yeah, Ray. Anything, anything else from a Stedman or from your perspective that Gary didn't mention, or it's pretty good. Um, no, I we've experienced everything that Gary's talking about. I mean, I, I just looked at uh, some figures. My overhead went from sixty percent down to forty percent since we, since our, our deal was done. Um, they helped us build two surgery centers. We're still uh, getting those up and up and running. Uh, we would not have been able to. Um, create these surgery centers without their partnership uh, uh, of, of capital. Um, so we still have yet to really uh, turn a profit on those, but um, those are all things that are going to help uh, with income repair. Yeah. yeah, but Ray, let me just ask you a question. If you were hypothetically doing 40 cases a month, you know, number one, you know, were you pressured to do more cases? And number two, I would assume that if you wanted to repair your income, on your own volition, you could say, you know what, I'm going to work a little harder to get to get that back up. In addition to income repair, um, I, 
you know, are, aren't those possibilities and is it not forced, which is my understanding? Like, you know, you're, you're not like, there's no whip cracking to have you work harder. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right, Gary. So I have not uh, been told uh, at any point in time that I needed to work harder, take less vacation, you know, I, um, that I couldn't go speak at meetings um, or go to courses and conferences. Um, it, it really is a true partnership because um, actually with our deal, we, we sold half of our EBITDA um, and it's still eat what you kill. So I, if I don't operate, I don't eat. So, you know, if I want to still maintain uh, my, my, my lifestyle and, 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 you know, make my cash flow work, um, I know how many cases I got to do. And so um, it's, it's, it's a true partnership. Um, Cause I, yeah, I've got to work if I, if I want to make money. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, Gary, I've been on the employed side, right? I've been in every, I think I've been in every practice model. I've been in pure <laughs> private practice. I've been in hybrid. I've been an employee. I mean, and I will tell you, um, just those things that you stated as the boss, as like the rumors for uh, PE back, those are real in employment. Th those are like, they do give you four weeks of vacation and they will monitor it. And you will get a certain amount of days to go to meetings to raise point. It's typically five. And then you typically, like all these things are very, uh, are a lot more regimented and they will call you into meeting and they'll expect you to be there, uh, you know, if you're employed. Where I think Ray's point is that this is more of a partnership that continues to be, that continues to be the case. And there's a lot more autonomy and freedom, I would say on this side. And it's, I think what the market's trying to do is preserve private practice, preserve that autonomy rather than uh run towards hospital employment that's in that's uh i think hospital employment for most is probably a short-sighted thing or you really don't want to work that hard you just want to clock in and sort of clock out and that may be okay for some people you know you've heard me before dana say this you might be you might be okay for employment that might be your thing you just right. want to come in and now most orthopedic surgeons aren't wired that way. Most of them, because right. they, they had to achieve and achieve and achieve to get an orthopedic surgery. Most of them don't just stop. So I think it lends itself well to, to Gary's point, to continuing to work hard to do those things. No, I agree, Michael. There's a lot. Yeah. And I didn't realize until, you know, Gary and I had done a couple of deals or we'd done a couple of deals, even outside where you can memorialize so many things, you know, your vacation schedule, clinical control and that's definitely something that these folks don't want to be a part of they want they want the doctors to run the business um, but it is interesting if you have good advisors on your side how much you can memorialize on the way in um, so it's just interesting to see i think the income repair question is a good one for anyone who's considering this just to get a real good answer from the potential investor of how do they get there the only thing gary didn't mention that i'm seeing is some direct to employer modeling happening so above and beyond the payers we actually do have a couple of big groups that are doing some pretty interesting things with their biggest employer groups in their geographies so tbd but at least it's something different um, yeah, and i think you you see i think you mentioned that dana <clears throat> about the ascs and so did ray as a consistent theme and so did gary yeah. like it takes capital to build an ASC. and you know oh. in my in my role with the anderson clinic that's one of the first that is, was the first thing we did with our MSO is we infuse capital to build them and expand. They had a one room ASC, couldn't do enough joint replacements. And so we, they now have um, two rooms that they fill with joint replacements. And that's, you know, that changes the paradigm a bit. 
No, absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, and you can see where CMS is pushing the patient, right? You look at the reimbursement schedule. If you That's don't right. have an ASC, you don't have an ASC. So yep. it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a problem moving forward. Um, yep. Last quick question, but just curious, I mean, where do you see this all going? I mean, we, you know, let's, if you had a crystal ball, orthopedic transactions over the next 24 months, 36 months, what does this look like? Um, and, you know, if somebody's naive to the process, what should they be asking on the way to the dance? And uh, Gary, I'll start with you. I mean, you're obviously getting inbounds from a bunch of different doctors daily. What do you see over the next 24 months or so? Do you see this increasing, decreasing, staying the same? Well, I think by the end of 2025, um, I think you're going to have at least you know, four, maybe more um, new investors taking over existing platforms in what we described as second bite transactions. And I think you're probably going to have, you know, at least four or five in the next two years, um, maybe two or three each year um, of new investors coming into orthopedics um, and uh, starting new platforms. And I think a lot of this also will be fueled by, I think there's going to be, as, as Michael mentioned, um, not only the private groups, but I think you're going to start to see this trend of uh, starting to grow even more within the next two years of groups under PSAs or, you know, employment, bunch of employed orthopedic surgical hospital or big multi-specialty group peeling off. And uh, as re with the help of one of these private equity sponsored platforms. And do you see, Gary, just just for color, do you see it just straight MSK? I mean, is it straight ortho? Do you have bolt on addendums that is a more broad, you know, pain, uh, pain, physical therapy, neurosurgery? I mean, what kind of is it straight ortho place or do you see it being open a bigger MSK discussion? I think it's under the whole MSK umbrella. I think it's all because everyone's got to expand, right? And you expand by bringing on more physicians, growing new offices organically, acquisitions, um, and growing ancillary. So I think everything from physical therapy and imaging to more offices and more specialties. So yes, neurosurgery, maybe neurology, um, imaging, all, all of those along with ASCs are, are going to expand. And, uh, but I think it's every, every sub I've worked on pediatric orthopedic groups, you know, hand surgery groups. I mean, they're all getting pulled in, all getting pulled in. So I think it's across the board. That's great. No, sounds like it's going to be busy. Ray, do you agree? I mean, next 24 months, same, are you getting a lot of inbounds or you're at AUKUS and people are pulling you aside saying, how did you do this? What can I do to join you? Yeah, I think there's going to be increased consolidation. Um, I'm just hoping that Michael's group buys us out. I hope to be working for Michael in the next 12 months. You heard so, it here. Uh, you heard it I'm, here. <laughs> I'm hoping to have him as my boss. Ray, uh, Ray I, I don't know if I'm hoping that you work for me or I work for you. I don't know. We have an attorney on the call. We can just get this done. I mean, it's this is easy. I know. We got Gary. We got Dana. I just, <laughs> I just emailed the DocuSign to both of you. <laughs> And that's a wrap. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not loving that. If if Ray has Dana and Gary on his team, I think I might be screwed. That's not going to be good for me. That's funny. <laughs> um. So, but same thing, same volume. I mean, you're getting a lot of folks still calling. I mean, you're you're at AUKUS, Ray, and people are saying, 
hey, we're scared. The fee schedule just got released. You know, what the heck? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there, I think everybody's had a lot of interest. Um, kind of going back to, uh, not to go uh, back in time, but um, yeah. one thing that Gary talked about with the anatomy of the deal, um, one key point is is that that cash that gets paid up front is uh, taxed at long-term capital gains. Absolutely. So for us, as we were looking at deals, that was that was a big point. You know, instead of getting taxed at ordinary income, which is you know forty five percent, that that payment is is long term capital gains of twenty five percent. That's that's a huge impact as we look at, you know, that money up front, taking trips off the table. So I think for, for a lot of surgeons that are asking about these deals, that's that's a big concern that uh, is on the forefront of their minds as well. So Ray, just to give just to put this in context of my. $30 million example. So that 20 million of cash is at long-term capital gains rates, which for the most part is around 20% lower than ordinary income. So the income that you're giving up to some extent is taxed much higher and much less in your pocket. Um, but I also wanted to point out that that $10 million of rollover equity, you know, assuming you've, you know, uh, you're an owner, uh, which is who, who gets the role of equity, you get that tax deferred. You are not taxed on that 10 million. You only, only until you sell it down the road and you get returns on it through a second bite or retirement, that's when you're taxed on that. Um, so that's important to know. There's, it's, a, it's kind of like several different ways of, of, of uh, you know, efficiencies with taxes on this. Uh, it's, a huge, it's a huge point, right? And we, I mean, a lot of us remember right after you guys, I think, did your deal was when there was a proposal to move those rates and capital gains up and Congress was talking about <laughs> all of a sudden everybody wanted to sell before that happened. But it's it's a definite consideration uh, for a physician thinking about most of them are in the top tax bracket. So you're exactly right. Um, Michael, how about you? I mean, same thing. You see this continuing. You're getting inbounds. You went to AUKUS and everybody's still talking about this. Yep. We obviously know it's a hot topic, but 24 yeah. months, same thing. Yeah, 24 months, I see a couple of things. I see continued consolidation to raise point. And consolidation is, that word sort of general, but I continue to see the groups that have groups pick up some add-ons, as they call, or bolt-ons, as they call. And I do think there'll be uh, more in-depth discussion of second bites, for sure. And I think that we're going to, it's interesting because... Uh, you ask a question about entire MSK, and that really plays into, it's an interesting thing that's not a straightforward answer. So the answer is, if you're going to go at risk, and you want to be, and you're going to do things like value-based care, and you're going to go direct to employer, you want to go with the entire musculoskeletal uh, service line, because they're going to say, we want to we wanna do a deal on all our MSK, and you want to offer that and then go at risk for all of it, right? That's the best way. The counter to that a little bit is the way to drive down the cost of care is with super specialization. So you have joint, for example, joint replacement centers. There's no doubt that high efficiency, low cost joint replacement centers drive better outcomes and higher quality uh, at a lower cost. And that has to be baked in here as well. So it's an interesting thing that the best, I think the best, uh, I think the best MSOs and enterprises will be able to do both. They'll be able to have uh, large-scale data analytics and do value-based care with great providers. And they'll also have some really great subspecialists that can drive 
um, higher margins and higher quality into the enterprise. So I think it's going to be both, right? I mean, you go how you'll see them, but I think if you try and go too big, too fast, and you just, I'm going to do all MSK and you gobble a bunch of everybody up, right? you haven't done the work to put them all together under a risk-bearing entity. And I think that'll be the, that'll be, I think, the, the challenge. No, it's a great point. No, I agree. It's interesting to see. I think, I think people are trying to figure out their thesis around that right now, Michael, and it's, yeah, yeah. It's broad, right? Um, yep. So, no, this has been a great, first of all, great conversation. Thank you. I wish we had three hours. The good news is we'll have three hours. We'll have more time in Vail um, and cocktails and dinner and all that stuff. But it was interesting, the ortho bullets folks I, I spoke to in preparation for this. And they said, you know, are you pro-private equity or anti-private equity? And I said, you know, I'm pro-education. And this is really important. So what a tip of the iceberg conversation. Michael, if somebody wants to hear more and they want to come to IOEN, what what do they need to do? Do you want me to th put the slide back up and maybe they can look at the barcode? Or what, what needs to happen if they're interested? Yeah, if you want to put the barcode up, that's fine. If you want to do that, I think that's great. But go to the IOEN website. Uh, it's ioen.net, right? That's our organization that's really focused on education. And thank you for bringing that up, Dana. The education is the key piece, right? There's our faculty. And yeah, that that uh, that code right there, will, you know, on your smartphone will take you to the registration. Uh, and we've got four hours dedicated to this topic where we can dive in deeper, add in great faculty like David Jakovsky and Ed Hellman who bring uh, additional perspectives to the conversation. And it's really, your point is about education, Dana. Thank you for bringing that up. And the other thing is it's really, particularly at this meeting, and I've always appreciated this about you and Gary, it's about also surgeon advocacy. It is about not letting the surgeons and the physicians get trampled in all of this. And the way we do that is by learning more and educating ourselves with the help of great minds like you all. So thank you for being a part of this and thanks for being a part of the course. Absolutely, our pleasure. Thank you all for a great conversation.